0: Well, do take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14 this evening and to those words we had read a few minutes ago. You would not have to go very far in this city to come across churches uh, who are uh, led by believers and filled with believing people, but who one would be so bold as to say in their understanding of living the Christian life are experiencing some fundamental confusion of what is expected of a believer and how a believer ought to live and what a believer should expect in terms of their relationship, their ongoing relationship with the Lord. Much of that confusion very often centers around the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And if we were going to avoid such confusion, it would uh, do us well to pay attention when we're reading the Bible to whom certain promises are given and what those promises mean in terms of your life and mine today. That, I think, is one of the lessons that emerges from this particular section of John's gospel. We need to remind ourselves as we come to this section of the gospel just precisely who Jesus is talking to. These words, for example, if you look at verse 18, the words, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, are obviously not spoken to you and me. We are not there in that room. We haven't had Jesus with us in person, present for three years, seeing him every day, listening to him every time he spoke, eating with him at meals, walking with him on the way, watching him as he performs miracles, and so on. He is speaking to those men in that upper room at that time. Those are the people he is speaking to. You can see this again in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. That's obviously not you and me in this room this evening. Or again, at the end of verse 31 rise and let us go from here. Now, maybe you wish Jesus was saying that to you right now and you could get out and avoid the sermon, but he isn't. I just want to reassure you of that. That is not a word for you tonight. Some people would use the Bible in that way. I remember I remember a preacher on one occasion, he was a bit stuck for his sermon and uh, he had a couple of ideas come into his head. Uh, he... Uh, He remembered three texts, and he thought he'd preach on these three texts. The first text was, Judas went and hung himself. The second text was, go and do thou likewise. And the third text was, what thou doest, do quickly. Well, that was an abuse of the texts. That was an abuse of the text. We're not going to do any of that abusing of texts this evening. But you can see, I think, from just those three little uh, verses that I've drawn your attention to, verse 18, verse 25, and 31, that Jesus is speaking very much primarily, first of all, to these men who are there with him. I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Rise, let us, that is me and you, Go from here. So Jesus is not with us the way he was with them then. We have not heard his voice in the flesh the way they were at that moment. We do not live in terms of time prior to his arrest and crucifixion as they did then that evening. And uh, six times, in fact, in this chapter, Jesus emphasizes... That he's spoken to them while he is still with them, and that theirs is an ear and eye witness testimony to the words of Jesus. Now, it's because of our relationship with the apostles that I might tease out if I have time uh, uh, this evening, but it's because of our relationship to the apostles that we can sometimes take Jesus' words to them. And by extension, by analogy, is a technical expression, apply them to ourselves. But we must remind ourselves constantly of what our relationship to the apostles is. In John chapter 17, Jesus will spell it out. He prays for the men who are with him, and then he prays for all those who will believe in him through their message. Now, where are you and I in that timeline? You and I are all the rest who will believe in him through their message. They're in an utterly unique role and in a unique position. How do we know about Jesus? We know about Jesus through the testimony of the apostles. How do we become Christians? We become Christians by believing the witness of the apostles to Jesus, What makes us believers? It is the Holy Spirit who makes us alive, opens our eyes and ears, gives us a knowledge of Jesus personally, gives us the gift of faith, who persuades and enables us to believe in him by the grace of God. Our relationship to the apostles and our relationship to the Spirit has to be absolutely clear in our heads so that we avoid confusion that leads to chaos within the church of God. So one of the things that we we notice in this section that we haven't spent any time on yet is Jesus' promise of the Spirit of God. One of the keynotes in this section is that Jesus' gift to the apostles and by extension to the church is that the triune God will take up residence in the disciples of Jesus. Watch how this move is made in the passage. Look at verse sixteen. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Jesus is praying for those men that the Father would give to them this great gift, the Spirit of truth. Here is the Spirit's involvement and presence in the life of those disciples, and by extension, the church. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you... As orphans, I will come to you. Who is speaking? This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He is saying that when the spirit of truth comes, that he will come personally and be present with his disciples by means of the Holy Spirit. He will not abandon them. But he will not come back to them in the flesh the way he was with them in that upper room. He will not abandon them, but he will come back to them as the Holy Spirit comes to be with them. And he will be with them by the Spirit, through the Spirit, in the period between his departure and his return again in glory at the end of the age. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, who is the we? My Father and the Son, we will come to him and make our home with him. So if you are a believer, if you're one of these disciples in that upper room, here is Jesus' promise, first that the Spirit will come, then that he will come, then that the Father and the Son will come and be present in and with the believer by the Holy Spirit. That is the distinctive hallmark of this period in redemptive history. From the moment Jesus departed for glory until the moment Jesus returns from glory, the distinctive feature of this era is that the father and the son are present in the life of the believer by the spirit the spirit is the key we do well to remember that and we to remember to do well to understand that in these statements jesus is making it known that the joy and hope of the old testament believer finds its fulfillment in christ And in the Spirit. In the Old Testament, for example, it was the great joy and hope of the Old Testament believer that God would dwell with his people. King Solomon asked of the dedication of the temple, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house? That is the temple that he had built. And yet, although that was true, Although God would never dwell in in glory except, in a sense, by token of his glory in the temple. Here is what God promises through Ezekiel. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's the great new covenant promise that is fulfilled in Christ. When you come to John's gospel, right at the very beginning of the gospel, we have that great revelation. the Word was with God, the Word was God. The, all things were made by him. nothing was, that is made there is nothing that was is made that was not made by him and, and Then we hear that this word, this word is coming into the world, and then the Word is made flesh and dwelt amongst us there the dwelling of God was not in a cloud of glory hovering over the temple. There the presence of God was not in that pillar of fire leading the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here the presence of God is in a person, in flesh and blood, the Word made flesh, the incarnate Son, the Word. God dwelt amongst us. And it's the hope of the believer that in the new heaven and the new earth, in that renewed and transformed creation, that God will be fully present with us forever. John says, I saw the holy city New Jerusalem come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He shall dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. But what about the meantime? Where is God present at the meantime? We know right now that Jesus in his humanity is present where? He's present in heaven. He is with the Father. He is in that place where God is most intensely present. We might call it God's home. The place we call heaven. That's where Jesus' humanity is. His humanity is not ubiquitous. It cannot be everywhere. It can only be one place. Just like your humanity can only be in one place at one time. And yet God and Christ as God fills everything and everywhere. So what do we discover in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul makes it clear that in this age... God is present with every believer and especially present with his church, the assembly of God's people. There his presence is intensified where his people are together. Remember, Peter says that each one of us is a living stone and those living stones are being built into a temple. And Paul says to the Ephesians, God is building the church into a holy temple in which God might dwell And the church is the place where God is pleased to dwell. When we gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we're not doing a small thing, brothers and sisters. Even though we're scattered around this building this evening, nonetheless, the gathering of God's people, these ordinary means of grace, the reading and preaching of the Word of God, prayers and confession of our sin and confession of our faith, these ordinary means of grace, are the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a Christian person. These ordinary means of grace are not ordinary, ultimately, because God is here. God is intensely here. This whole gathering this this evening is infused with the presence and power of the triune God because of the presence of the Spirit with us. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. When we are gathered together, we are the temple of the living God. God is with us. He is present with us. That's why we begin with his word. That's why we end with his benediction. That's why everything is suffused by His Word. We are here in His presence. Every time we hear a verse of Scripture, every time we hear a thought that derives from Scripture, every time we hear the preaching of the Word of God, we're being reminded that right here at this moment we are in the presence of God. In some way it doesn't matter what you feel about it, whether you feel that you're in the presence of God or not. It doesn't matter whether you think it's a boring service or not. It doesn't matter what the accidents, what the elements around you are. The reality is, the reality is that when God's people are together, God counts that a place where he can dwell intensely with his church. And the church and the believer are a new creation. They have eternal life now and they will have resurrection life in the life to come. Now, what this means for our understanding of Christianity is this, that through faith in Christ, by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the believer may know God for themselves. Knowing God is possible for the believer. Knowing him. Not just knowing about him, but knowing God in the sense of knowing the person. And what Jesus says here is that the triune God will come and make his home with them. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, as Don Carson puts it, it does not mean a mystical experience. It's not some kind of being lifted out of your ordinary realm and into some kind of esoteric never-never land. Nor does it mean that we increasingly cease to exist and the God thing begins to take over. That's one of these ideas that, that has developed in some quarters over the years. Nor does it mean the invasion of and the overwhelming of our humanity until ultimately, in a sense, we, we, lose, we, we, we lose our humanity. Our humanity is diminished in some way. No, no, remember, God planned this thing from the beginning, so he made us in the beginning in his image. We were made in his image so that he might dwell in us and be with us and we might dwell with him in the new heaven and new earth. He made us that way in the beginning. Now, sin has done what? Sin has damaged that image. It has defaced the image. It has not destroyed the image, but it has, it has defaced the image of God in us. And what is the purpose of redemption? One of the purposes of redemption After the forgiveness of our sins and the making of us right with God and reconciling us to God, one of the purposes of redemption is that we should be renewed into the image of our humanity by being renewed into the image of Christ. That's what God is about in our lives. He's making us more like Jesus, which means making us more human. That is the humanity that we were made with right at the very start. So this is why we must keep all of divine revelation in our heads. Because man is made in the image of God, then God is never going to do anything with us that diminishes our humanity, but rather increases it. A person who is becoming holy, who is becoming more like God, is becoming more human, not less. More human in the sense that God has made us as human beings in his image. Now, if we pause just for a minute and look again at this text, you find that here in this passage, we are being provided with some of the building blocks of our understanding of God as Trinity. Here are three persons here, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We learn about the Spirit that he is the same kind of helper as the Son. We pointed out that the word for another helper does not mean another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. So the helper, when he comes, is going to be another of the same kind as Jesus. Jesus is God. He is the the helper is God. He has the nature of God. And where the Spirit is, do you notice where the Spirit is, there the Father and the Son are. The three are inseparable in some sense, and yet distinguishable. Throughout John's Gospel, all three persons are vitally involved in the mission of Jesus, though each person has a distinct part to play in the drama of redemption. Now you put all that into the mix, and there you have the ingredients for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the chief gift that's mentioned here, of course, is this divine help person, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit in verse 26 because he shares the very nature of the Holy One of Israel. If Jesus was holy and God is holy, the Spirit is holy. That's immediately Jesus telling us, underlining for us the deity of the Holy Spirit. So calling him another helper, that is, another of the same kind as me, calling him the Holy Spirit is reminding us that the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God the Spirit. He is the Lord the Spirit. He is the Lord and giver of life. But he particularly, do you notice, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. Now, there's been a lot about truth in John's gospel, going back to chapter 1. There's been that great statement, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There is in the universe ultimate, absolute truth. That truth is revealed to us. The Father, the Father is true. Every word that God the Father says is true. In John chapter 17, Jesus will say of the Father, thy word is truth. God the Father is true. He is truth. The Lord Jesus in chapter 8, for example, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Everyone who comes to the Son knows the truth, the truth sets you free. He says in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Father is truth, truth. the Son is truth. And here we're being told that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He's the one who brings to the church the knowledge of God. That's what the truth means. It's the knowledge of God. That's what theology means, the knowledge of God. And the truth the Spirit brings to the church, brings into our lives, is the knowledge of God. We've already spent some time looking at the Spirit as the helper, the the paracletos, which is the Greek word, the one who's called alongside the people of God to strengthen them and support them and give them a prod into action. But we remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is not just there as some kind of divine mechanism that we engage in order to get better results from the work we're doing. What a carnal way of looking at church work and Christian work that is. No, the Holy Spirit is set apart from us. He is set apart from everything that is profane. He is the Holy Spirit. Here's more about the Spirit from this passage The Spirit is the one whom the Father will send in my name. Here we're introduced to another idea from John's Gospel that has to do with sending. The Father is the ultimate sender, He is never sent. Whenever you hear about the Father, the Father sends the prophets, the Father sends the Spirit, the Father sends the Son. The Father is never sent, He is the ultimate center, sender. He sends the Son and the Spirit. Jesus is the sent one, sent by the Father, who sends out his disciples and sends his spirit. Only Jesus is both the sent one and the sender. The Spirit, on the other hand, never sends, but is sent by both the Father and the Son. The Father sends him out in Jesus' name. So there is this movement that you see in relation to our redemption, in relation to our salvation, in relation to the way in which God works in connection with his creation and with his purposes of redemption for men and women, in which those roles are taken by the members of the Trinity. Now, Jesus was going to leave these disciples, and he was very much, the presence of the Spirit was very much needed for the disciples because they were singularly bad at getting what Jesus was saying. Again and again throughout his ministry, you find it coming up with annoying regularity. They listen to what he is saying and they don't get it. They just don't grasp it. They take the wrong meaning out of it. I mean, people do that with me, but they did it with Jesus. So it's a bit of encouragement. Uh, At least he was perfect and I'm not. But but nonetheless, it, it seems to be a feature of human beings that we don't always listen closely enough. And throughout his ministry, even after the resurrection... I mean, you'd think after the resurrection, after he spent six weeks giving them an intensive seminary course, that these guys would know more. But even as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, they're asking him the wrong question. Will, will, you, now, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't know how Jesus felt when they said that. It doesn't tell us. But you want to say in his behalf... Did you not get this? Did you not get this? This is not what he's doing. He tells them to wait till the spirit comes. Then they'll know the truth. So throughout his ministry then, Jesus is uh, preparing them. But here he promises them that the spirit will come and that he comes first of all as the spirit of truth. And now in this passage, we're told how he will communicate that truth. Look at verse 26. Several things we learn from verse 26 that are important for us. The first thing is this. The Holy Spirit has nothing new to add to what Jesus has said. He has nothing new to add to what Jesus has said. Just as Jesus, in fact, was not an innovator, Jesus based his teaching on the Old Testament Scriptures and gave us the correct understanding of those Scriptures. Rather, what the Holy Spirit will do is he will bring to light and fill out the meaning and significance of the revelation given by Jesus. The Lord Jesus was our ultimate teacher. The Lord Jesus gathered these people together around him like a rabbi did. He taught them as he walked along the road, as he sat at lunch. Much of what he said were pithy, short sayings, repeated perhaps many, many times. They were able to memorize many of them, I'm sure. They didn't have notebooks. They probably weren't able to remember everything he said. So he promises that the Spirit will bring back to their remembrance. Look at verse 26. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, he's going to say later that he will also tell them all the things that Jesus wanted to say and hadn't said, that he'll bring those things, he'll clarify those things to these men. But the point is, the Spirit's job is to bring to the apostles the teaching that Jesus gave and that Jesus wanted to give. He is not an innovator. And once he has done that, that will be it. Once he's given the message to the apostles, that will be it. From then on, John 17, everybody else will become Christians on the basis of their testimony. So you and I can't go to verse 26 and say, this is me. The Holy Spirit will teach me all things. And you know it's not you because how can he bring to you remembrance the things that Jesus was saying when he was here in the flesh because you weren't here when he was here in the flesh. This is a promise to them and to them alone because he brings to their remembrance all that I have said to you. Very important that we don't get confused. The Holy Spirit is not an innovator. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will teach the church through the apostles. Because this promise has in view the Spirit's role to the first generation of disciples, not to subsequent Christians. Our Lord is not saying to first and 21st century Christians how they might be taught by the Spirit. Rather, he is explaining how those first disciples came to an accurate and full understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ. Our Lord had promised these men, who would feel abandoned when he left them, that they would be the ones to see him alive after his passion. Verse 19. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. They're going to see him alive. That was a reassurance for them. They will share in the resurrection one day. It's the apostles because of their connection to Jesus. Now, let's get this right. It is through the apostles now we know what to believe about Jesus. We now come to the Old Testament through the apostles. Their authorization, because there's a spokesman for Jesus, their authorization of the Old Testament and the prophets means that we take all of the Old Testament as authoritative and the New Testament as authoritative because these apostles of Jesus gave the message to us. What they remembered and what they wrote down was superintended by the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. The spirit that Jesus would send to represent him. And so we have to distinguish this evening between them and us. There are false teachers around who are very nice people. And they have lots of books and they have lots of shows and they do conferences and they say some good things mixed in among the bad things. But they are really dangerous because they say that revelation from the Spirit continues and that the Holy Spirit tells them things For today, that he doesn't tell them, it's not the Spirit that's telling them, it's their imagination that's telling them. I mean, I can think of lots of things that I like to say to some people. And I'd like to be able to say it to them in this way. The Lord told me. The Lord told me. C.H. Spurgeon had a guy come to him on one occasion and say to him, The Lord told me that I should preach in your church next Sunday morning. Spurgeon said to him, I'm afraid you got that wrong because if that was true, the Lord would have told me too, but he didn't. So we've got to be, da- we've got to be careful about the danger of this kind of talk. That kind of dangerous talk costs people their souls. And so we, we have to be careful about this. We distinguish between them and us. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Why? Because the Spirit of God led them into all truth. Now, one of the great errors of a, a particular church is that it has tried to keep the apostleship going on and believes that, that in, the, in the, the mechanism of the church itself, there is a continuing instrument of continued revelation and that you can add to what Jesus taught, new doctrines that are not taught in the Word of God. Like the eternal virginity of Mary, like the assumption of Mary into heaven, like Mary as, as, a, as a mediatrix between you and the Son and between you and God, and so on, and prayers for the saints, and all of those things that have come into place. Actually, some of these things come into place since the Reformation. That is deformation. That is something that is inimical to the truth that's revealed in the Bible. And be careful that the apostles were here. They had this job to do. They were the foundation on which the church is built. We build ourselves on that foundation. In what way? We go back to their teaching. We, we come... Uh, the, we, Paul puts on this in Ephesians. He says, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I, I think the order there is absolutely right. The apostles, because they knew Jesus in the flesh, they saw the risen Christ. Because Christ rose, that gives his authority, not only to New Testament teaching, but to Old Testament teaching. We are built on that foundation. And the foundation you build on, once it's down there and you've started to build the church on the foundation... You're not adding to the foundation over and over again. You are building the building, the superstructure, on the foundation. And that's the business of the church today, to build on that sure foundation. That's why Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, who've got some people in their church there, who think that because of some miraculous gifts they have, that they are competitors of the apostle. The apostle Paul says, listen, you know the marks of an apostle that distinguish the apostle from everybody else, and it's this. They are doing the signs that Jesus did. They're doing miracles of the same measure and import as Jesus performed them. Nobody else is doing that. God may answer a prayer for healing here, and he may answer a prayer for healing there, but that is in a different class and classification from what the apostles and Jesus did the signs of an apostle, distinguished them from the rest of the church, which is why from the very earliest days, people took note that they had been with Jesus. They saw from the signs they performed and from the teaching and the authority they had that they were distinguished from every other Christian. And they gave attention to the apostles' teaching Because they found in the apostles' teaching the voice of the Spirit of God, bringing the voice of Christ into the church. And we come to believe, as Jesus says in chapter 17, we come to believe in him through their message. That's the way in which it works. That's the way in which it's meant to work. We come then, we are are not given any promise that somehow or other there will be a a bolt from the blue or an idea in our head that comes as a voice from heaven the way it came to the apostles. We have to distinguish. We have to put clear blue water between them and us. The church is apostolic because it believes the apostolic teaching. But the third thing I think we notice from this little verse is this. The help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit carries on his helping ministry by bringing the words and teaching of Jesus to the mind of the disciples. Is there any way which, by extension, not by absolute likeness, but by analogy, The Holy Spirit has that kind of ministry in the life of the church today. And there's a sense in which, and I carefully use that expression, there is a sense in which as we come to Scripture, as Scripture comes into our mind in crisis moments, the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God in the life of the believer to nourish and cherish the believer and to reassure the believer and to build the believer up. There have been times, have been times in one's life where we become very conscious of something coming right out of the blue. The Lord has used his word. Sometimes he's used means. Sometimes he's used it directly. I remember a little crisis point when I was a teenager, uh, 17 or something, and, and I was struggling with this whole question now about whether or not the ministry was the way I should go. And I remember praying to God that somehow or other I might have some clarity about whether or not that was the thing that I should do. And I remember very clearly that into my head from nowhere came words from Jeremiah chapter 1. While you were in the womb, I called you. No danger to be a prophet. Well, I didn't take that too seriously. I went to college. A Friend of mine at college invited me round to his house for lunch. He was recently married, so that was a good place to go for lunch because his wife made the lunch, and we had a good time there. And Katrina, I remember saying her saying to me, Liam, I was praying for you this morning. And when I was praying for you this morning, I was reading from my reading that day. Jeremiah chapter 1 and I, I felt I should tell you that you should read Jeremiah chapter 1 wow that was very interesting wasn't it that somebody should be praying for me and think about that verse and then that evening I went to a meeting in the free church there in Glasgow uh, Sam singing only as it was in those days and they had a preacher from out of town he came to preach that, that evening and he preached on Jeremiah chapter 1. So sometimes God gets your attention. And, and you feel, well, was that, that would, maybe that was all just random. I don't believe it was random. It's an answer to prayer. And there are times that happens. It doesn't happen all the time. It happens rarely in the life of the believer. But I do think that we can say that by analogy, by extension, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring the word of God home to the people of God. Now, he does that through the ordinary means of grace. For me in my Christian life, I have to say this, it has always been the preaching of the word of God in church that has been the means God has used to speak to my heart. I I read the Bible and I pray as the rest of us do, but what I find is that through the preaching of God's word, God reaches my heart. That's funny that because that's the way the Bible says it should happen. And certainly that's my testimony. Sometimes the word of God comes with great power. It disturbs you. It comes like a hammer, sometimes breaking the disobedience in your your life. Sometimes it comes to soothe you, to encourage you, to give you hope. Isn't it wonderful that the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible hasn't abandoned the Bible but still uses the Bible in our lives? Why does he do that? Because by his presence in our life, the Father and the Son are present with us too. Wherever we go, Jesus in his deity, the Father in his glory, the Spirit in our hearts goes where we go. That's why Jesus can say to his children as he sends them out, I will be with you always, always, always closer to us than breathing, ever with us in our journey. Do you know it is a remarkable thing to have gotten to this stage in one's life and be able to say, I've never known what it is to be abandoned by the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean I haven't had bad days. I've had bad days here at 10th, but I've never felt abandoned by the Lord Jesus. And that's because he never abandons you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He will be with you always. That's the great ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And when all the believers are together on the Lord's day, he intensifies that. He intensifies that. Because the voice that you're looking for, the word that you're seeking, somehow then becomes public. It's a corporate thing. We hear the voice of God when we hear the Word of God read and preached. And we can check it out because we can turn to the person next to to us in church and say, Did you hear that? And they will say, No, I was sleeping. No, they'll say, Yes, I heard it too. And does it really mean that? And they're able to say to you, Yes, it really means that. That's how the Word of God builds us up. That's why corporate coming together is so vital. For the people of God. So I'm going to leave it there. Because that's the only... Because all the rest would be a distraction. We'll come back to the rest another time. But isn't it wonderful that the Holy Spirit's ministry to the apostles was to give them the very word of God that we have in our hands in our New Testament. And the presence of the Spirit in our hearts brings the Father and the Son into our lives. So that the triune God dwells by the Spirit in the heart and life of the believer. The spirit of glory and of God dwells in you. Don't forget that this week. Wherever you find yourself, in whatever state you find yourself in, whatever tests come your way, the spirit of glory and of God remains with you. Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world. We thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come into our lives by giving us new birth, by bringing life to us when we were dead, by creating faith within our hearts that we might embrace Christ. You have immediately led us to him, put the spotlight onto him, And given us his word in the scripture. And then use that word to speak into our hearts and minds. Come we pray this evening. And reassure us throughout this week. Of the presence and power of the triune within us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.